Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at anchor.fm slash allingospel or visit the allingospel.com website. Okay, we're in Joshua 7, picking up where we left off. It says, but, we'll come back to the but word. The children of Israel committed a trespass regarding the accursed things for Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah, took of the accursed things, so the anger of the Lord burned against the children of Israel. So we get a weighty subject tonight. This is not as lighthearted as knocking down the walls of Jericho, for sure. Um, they had the word but at the beginning of the sentence. They just got done, if you recall, conquering the mightiest city in the territory, the large city of Jericho, the intimidating, unbeatable walls of Jericho fell down. They have this huge victory. They're following God. They're obeying God. God says this, Joshua tells the people, the people do it. Just total symmetry. And they're enthusiastic. They can do anything. Victories are coming. Uh, and then, of course, with their first major victory comes their first major defeat. And that's where we get this chapter, is it all falls apart. So thus, the word but. Um, there are a, there's a new character here that's introduced, Achan. Uh, we'll get to him. Um, but we get a serious lesson throughout the chapter of what and how corrupt sin is amongst the body of Christ. And what it does to the people of God, especially when there's unity of the Spirit, when things are going well, this is how it gets screwed up. So if we can read it and learn it, we can avoid it. And that's the point, because if God makes us able to sin, he also makes us able to not sin. And there's two sins here in the first verse. One is this: the children of Israel committed a trespass. Do you see that? Regarding the accursed things. For Achan, and then there's also this Achan theft, he decides to take some of the accursed things. So there's the societal, the community sin, and there's the Achan sin, and we're going to deal with both of those. Um, one is theft, which is against the law. The other is a trespass. And the context of this comes from Joshua 6, 18, what we saw in the last chapter. They were going to take Jericho, and they were by all means to abstain from the accursed things, lest you become accursed when you take the accursed. And the camp of Israel becomes a curse and troubles it. Okay, <laughs> and make the camp of Israel curse and trouble it. The word trouble in Joshua 6.18 is the word Achan. The word Achan actually means trouble, and not the good kind of trouble, the bad kind of trouble, because I know we've watched The Chosen, the last one of the season was good kind of trouble. This is bad trouble, and it's actually right there. It's almost prophetic in Joshua 6.18. All the silver, gold, vessels of bronze, iron, the consecrated to the Lord, they go to the treasury of the Lord. They are set aside for God. Um, God asks this of them. Have you ever noticed when things start moving really, really good spiritually that something happens that's really, really bad spiritually? And that pattern of kind of the spiritual life, and, and of course the entire book of Joshua is kind of the people of God coming into the promised land. When you, after you are saved, after you've spent years in the wilderness and you start following the Lord with your whole heart, 
you'll have these times with great victories and then a huge setback. And it's just that uh, it's like God's training us to not get too cocky when things happen and they're great. And that's kind of what happens here. It says, but the children of Israel committed. They're all going to suffer for this situation. And God views the people of Israel as one united group. Uh, where they're expecting each life in that group to be holy. So if there's sin hiding among it, everybody suffers. Got a lot of teachers in the room. This happens all the time. Who shot the spitball? Nobody admits to it. Okay, kids. We're going to do X, Y, and Z that's miserable until I find out who shot the spitball. And then it's a battle of wills. Classroom teacher versus entire unit of classroom. And that's what this is. It's the same situation. All the children of Israel took something from the accursed place. And that's the existing way that God deals with God's people until the sin is dealt with. And then, then we can move on with other things. So the people don't speak up and challenge. They're complicit in it. People that knew Achan and knew what he did, they're part of the program. And they didn't do anything about it. So when evil hides, everybody suffers. So holiness then becomes a culture that God expects his people to have. And it's not that we're perfect saints or anything like that, but we're seeking God with our whole heart, mind, and soul. When you got somebody who's seeking themselves over and above the pursuit of God, they're selfish, that becomes a problem with the children of God, and it becomes disruptive in the process. So then you got the trespass. We know the trespass is not a sin. In Leviticus, there were two different offerings. There's a trespass offering and a sin offering. Remember that? Those, well, when you get there. Um, so there, if there's two different offerings, then they're slightly different things. Trespass is when you walk on someone else's territory. And in this case, they're walking on God's territory. He claimed those things as devoted to destruction. So they were God's and they, and they, they walked in that territory and then Achan actually stole from that territory, breaking one of the Ten Commandments. Achan committed a sin. The people of Israel trespassed. Does that make sense? Okay, so sin then is this defiance of God's law. It's trespassing is stepping into God's territory. Um, we're going to start with verse 2 on how they step into God's territory, and we'll get to sin later with the trespassing. So they trespass. Here's how they trespass. They never bothered to talk to God before they do this next thing when we get to verse 2. And in doing that, that part of the relationship that God has in covenant, which is God directs our steps, as soon as they started doing stuff where God wasn't directing their steps, they're taking God's territory. They're taking the role that God should have in their lives and doing it for themselves. I do this all the time. It's like one of the great challenges in the faith is letting God lead your life or leading it yourself. So the accursed things, I want to just do a little bit more uh, unpacking of that first verse. In the Hebrew, that's karem. It means devoted or something that has holes in it that's meant to capture like a fishing net. And the fishing that allows the little fish to get free, they are not doomed to destruction. And the ones that are gathered up are doomed to destruction. And you can be doomed in two ways. You can be doomed to holiness and sanctification, committed or devoted to sanctification, or you can be doomed to dinner and be um, eaten and destroyed. So, But the idea that you're captured in that net is where that word kareem comes from. It's the same word for their fishing nets. The Canaanites then are being driven out. The idols are doomed for destruction. All the stuff they leave behind is supposed to be destroyed. Don't miss that. Um, why is it accursed? And I think it's kind of important to know that Canaanite worship was coming right from Egyptian worship. 
The language and the dialects change a little bit, so some of the names of the gods change. But that polytheism where you basically worship whatever you want to, you know, um, pick your saint, you know, whatever makes you happy. Um, the, the, the Baals of Canaanite mixed that Egyptian religion in with what was the original religion of Yahweh. So I'm going to give you a couple comparisons between Canaanite. The, the religion of El, God, or Elohim, the plural word for God. The Jewish people take Elohim, plural word, and make it a unified singular God, three in one God, Elohim, right? The Canaanites use Baals, and Baal can be a singular God that they're worshiping, or it can be all of the Baals, and they gather it together, just like that thing. But with the Jews, Elohim's a unified personal God. To the Canaanites, it's their word for the pantheon of gods, plural. They corrupt the original faith in God and make it their own. Remember, these are cousins of the Jews. They knew God at one point in history. God invites the heart, mind, and soul to devotion through a free will relationship. The Baals demand anything but Yahweh devotion. And they, they demand it through power and, and societal pressure. And they have through the Egyptian world and they do in the Canaanite world. It's a corruption of what the Jewish people had. Where the Canaanite divinities seem to have been almost identical in form and function to the Armenians to the east, the Baal, Hadad, and El can be distinguished from the Amorites and the Egyptians. It's very similar what they're doing there. And God's saying there's going to be one place on the planet where people don't just worship whatever they want. It's going to be holy and devoted and sacred. And so that's why this is such a big deal that these things get taken care of. He doesn't want these religions to be infecting his population. And at this point in history, if you want to set up a kingdom that's going to prepare a Messiah, that's going to be the salvation of the world, you just can't have Egyptian religion and Canaanite religion infecting that process. Does that make sense? This, is a, this was a big deal. It's why God told them, it's devoted to me. You don't get it. It's not yours. And, and I want it destroyed. So that's God's prerogative when he does this. They didn't have Jericho to start with. So when they got Jericho, it was they didn't take it. God did. And God's saying, you don't get to claim any of it, right? You don't get to take credit for his work. You know, he gets the, he gets the property rights. So um, you should know this too about the Canaanites. As they diaspora, so as they're being driven out of the land right now, and they go to Babylon, Assyria. They also go to Turkey and Greece, and they bring their religions with them. So it doesn't die. It actually continues. This stuff continues to affect other societies. So there's huge similarities, and most anthropologists believe the pantheon of the Greeks and the pantheon of the Romans are direct descendants of Canaanite and Egyptian pantheons. They just change the names, they change the superhero outfits, and it's the same exact thing, right? They get Mercury, they get Flash, they get that hero goes through. But that pantheon hero-like god thing, worship whichever one you think is the coolest, it comes straight through and it infects those societies. And it becomes what the kids worship. And then they grow up and they worship it. And it becomes something that just infects the society. So that is why, in verse 1, sorry, it's taking a long time, the anger of the Lord burns against the children of Israel. He's ticked off. That was my city, and I wanted that stuff wrecked. And here you got somebody claiming it. So Israel is unbeatable by the Canaanites, but they're, they can totally beat themselves. When the church of God moves forward, nothing can stop it. The gates of hell can't stand against us, but we can get mess that up. We can get in the way of that with our own sin. 
And that's exactly what's going on here. So God's ticked off. Verse 1 sets up the narrative. It's something that we should see is spiritually completely connected to the next narrative because in verse 2 it says now. In other words, the writer wants us to know that piece of context. There's sin in the mix. There's leaven in the bread. And now Joshua sends men from Jericho to Ai, which is beside Beth-Avon on the east side of Bethel, and he spoke to them saying, go up and spy out the country. Up is into the hills. It's geographically accurate. If you go north from, from this spot, they're going up. Ai is, is in the Hebrew means the ruin. So we're talking about the walls of the mighty Jericho, and then they're going to go attack the ruin, right? This is just a little hodunk farm town. This is nothing. So they, uh, it's about four miles away. So in proximity, if you're working your way out to conquer the land, it's the next city in line geographically as to what they would conquer. It's consistent behavior with chapter two. Remember Joshua then sent out two people to spy out the city? And then there was this huge God moment with Rahab. And they come back and they're like, you won't believe we got some Canaanite quoting Moses' prophecies back at us. This is huge. God is with us. None of that this time. So the men went up and spied out Ai. They returned to Joshua and said to him, don't let all the people go up, but let out two or 3,000 men to go up and attack Ai. Don't weary all the people there, for, there's, for the people of Ai are few. So that's human advice. No God moment. No, hey, yeah, coffee shop's free. None of that stuff is going on, right? It's just, we're good to go. We took Jericho. We can take these farmers, no problem. We're probably miners, right? We're up in the mountains. So there's two or 3,000 is all you need. The enemy's weak. It's not an issue. Of course, it's not an issue to God, but these people of Israel have been wandering in the desert. They're hobbits, right? They're not battle-ready soldiers. So they're not going to win against two or 3,000 soldiers because this isn't what they do. It's what God said he would do for them. So they're already treating it like a physical battle, and they are 100,000 soldiers to a couple thousand up in the hills. So they can vastly overwhelm these people. In every fleshly sense, they're giving Joshua good earthly advice, right? Here's the numbers you need. You'll easily overwhelm these people. It's just a little outside town. So they have never seen any Kurosawa samurai films. A very few number of people can defend their home against a large army. Not hard to do. So this, in my opinion, would be a great movie if you were in the perspective of AI, because then you'd get the winning side of the story, right? But they're going to hold off the Israelites. So instead of looking at this like a spiritual battle, which chapters 1 through 5, it was all spiritual battle. They're just ignoring the spiritual battle, and they're all in the flesh now, and thinking they're all that. We got it. We don't need God. This is a bad idea. So verse 4, so about 3,000 men went up there from the people. Uh, note that Joshua seems to have a gut feeling. He, they say two or 3,000. He sends three. Like you almost get the sense that Joshua had felt like he should send more people because he goes with the higher number. Uh, still, it's nothing like chapter 6. God said it. Joshua shares it. The people do it. Nothing like that. There's no indication. This is what you call presumption. There's no relationship or direction coming from God, but these people are good Christian people. But this is what you call a trespass. You're taking God's job from him. And whenever God's people want to move or do things or change and you take God's job away from him, you're presuming that you know better than God how to live your life. So it looks easy. It's a no-brainer. Why would we bother God with these troubles? And God says, because I love you. I want you to bother me with your troubles. Give them to me. So I, again, I'm going to just say I was really convicted this week. I literally do this every day. 
And I think a lot of us struggle with this. We do this all the time. What we see in the world seems to be handleable, so we don't hand it to God, and then we don't see the victories. And we don't see God doing miraculous things, even with the easy stuff in our life. So we wait until we see something impossible and hard before we pray about it, instead of praying about every little thing. Lord, when I go into this grocery store, help me run into somebody that I can share my faith with. Lord, help me do this. And so that kind of expectation of miracle in every little thing is what we should be doing with God. But we, we struggle with this because we're sinners. So verse 4, but they fled before the men of Ai. The men of Ai struck down 36 men. By the way, that's 36 men more than they lost at Jericho. So that's not a small number, even though there's 2 million Israelites. That's 36 human beings. For they chased them before the gate as far as Shabarim. They struck them down on the descent. Therefore, the hearts of the people melted and became like water. So instead of the Jerichoans melting, now the Israelites are melting. Uh, they, it, it, it's not clearly not about numbers because if they fled, that's 3,000 people fled after only 36 people died. Like that's a gutless army, right? In most armies, you expect a few people to die just because they trip on their, 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 a stone and stab themselves. 36 out of 3,000 is about right just for accidents. But they're running after 36 deaths happen. And I don't want to diminish the deaths. But really, that's sending your whole country into flight just because a couple people died? 0.01% die of something and you run in fear? Really? So more spiritual than an actual route is that their hearts are melting. And I don't want to diminish that 36 people die. That's a big deal. That's 36 dead people in a field. And that's a tragedy. That's horrible. They could have avoided this. It's also kind of embarrassing, right? You got two million people in this little town of I just sent your, your shock troops running like babies? This is not a good situation. The word shabaram there means crushing or breaking, like it's a stone quarry of some sort, but also the sense that even the Israelites were crushed and, and broken down to powder. They had real fear. Their hearts melted and became like water. Uh, they are, at this sense, not doing very well at all. Our hearts should be strengthened by God, not turned into water. We should be steeled by God, not childish miscommunications and cowardice and, and division. Um, we, should, we should struggle with this. Okay, I want to get to the dead men. 36 dead men in a field. For those of you that went through Deuteronomy and we studied the law, we got, a, we got an issue. You thought, that would never come up. You would never have a murder mystery happen, and you have to find out who killed these people. But there it is right there. It just happened. So you go back to, if you want the reference, Deuteronomy 21.1. There is a law that God has already told them about how to deal with this. If anyone is found slain lying in a field in the land which the Lord your God is giving to you, that's this promised land, uh, and, you, and it is not known who kills him, then the elders of the city are supposed to measure distances, determine what it is, and investigate all they can. Their role, when you find dead people and you don't know who the murderer is or who the problem is, you're supposed to investigate it. You're supposed to send Sherlock Holmes on the thing and figure it out. And in this case, they know that physically AI killed them, but they also know that nobody can kill them when God's with them. God's not with them. Somebody's in the camp that caused this to happen. Someone's foolish disregard for railings has made it so somebody fell into a pit in their backyard. And they're accountable for that foolishness and that, that, that kind of situation. That's another law in the Old Testament that I think is unique. So if only Israel can beat Israel, someone in Israel is, is guilty and they got a, somebody stepped off their place and into trespassing. So there should be due diligence. Verse 6, Joshua tears his clothes, 
falls to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until evening, he and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. I love this verse. This is how you deal with sin. The leader, Joshua, and notice it says all the elders in verse 6, all go into full-on mourning. Oh, my goodness. And the idea of falling on your face and getting to the earth is to get as low as you can because you realize your position in the face of an almighty God. The dust on your heads is to say, I'm even beneath dirt. So they would cover themselves with dirt. I think that would make it so you got to have a shower. But that's the point is, I'm not worthy. And they lay themselves in that position of, God, I'm just not worthy. I don't get it. So when you see that indication that God's not with you in life, and you stop and say, God, I'm just not worthy. I screwed up. What did I do? That's called repentance, right? Reveal to me what my sin is, even my unknown sin. If I've trespassed against you, Lord, forgive me my trespasses. I got to figure this out. So the lack of God should become the first priority of leadership in this situation. They should take it to the Lord in prayer. Verse 6, that's exactly what they do. They get an overwhelming defeat, humiliation, and then they throw dust on their heads and say, oh my goodness. They position themselves where they should because if God's not with them, they're not worth much. And we're in the same boat. Again, I told you this was a heavy topic tonight. Sorry about that, Lisa. Verse 7, And Joshua said, Alas, Lord God, why have you brought Jehovah Elohim, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to deliver us in the hand of the Amorites to destroy us? Oh, that we have been content and dwelt on the other side of the Jordan. So they seem to be um, still getting to know God a little bit. This is, this is a rhetorical question, but it's the same question the people of Israel asked of Moses when they thought they were going down. Why did you even bring us out here just to die in the wilderness? So one first reading of verse 7, you're thinking, is Joshua falling into that boat? Is he going to get into trouble? So he and the elders of Israel are united. They're together. They're in prayer. Why did you leave us is the first question. They immediately recognize that because they failed, God's not with them. Right? So then Joshua almost sounds like he's blaming God, but I think there's a huge difference. It says that we had been... Joshua isn't taking this to gossip and murmuring, right? That's the difference. The people of Israel are all mumbling about it in the camp. Joshua's taken it right to the Ark of the Lord, and he's given the Lord his problems instead of complaining about it to other people, right? That happens in the church all the time. We don't complain about it to other people. Go straight to the pastor with it. If you've got an issue, like throw it to the pastor or go right to God with it and say, God, change my heart, because I love these people, and I hang out with them, so help me work this out. So he places the blame squarely on himself and on Israel. There's no blame game here. There's no excuses. So it's the same words, but the context of it is really different. In other words, it's not a legalistic thing. It's a heart thing, and God knows the heart of Joshua more than he knows the heart of other people. So God can handle our complaints. He's a big boy. He can put on his big boy pants, and there's no complaint we can give to God that God can't handle. There's no question we can ask God that he can't handle. Even the question that gets people destroyed in the wilderness. God can take that question if it comes from the right heart, a heart of repentance and a heart of what can I do differently. So he bears his heart to God. Um, he bears his hurt to God. And this idea of, Lord, did we just come out here to die? And, and I'm thinking, you got 2 million people and 36 people are dead. Like there's kind of this, Joshua's got to work this out with God. So he says, verse 8, O Lord, 
What shall I say when Israel turns its backs before its enemies? He's thinking about the courage of Israel, about the running. Joshua's not even aware of Achan yet. Remember, we got to know that as readers, but Joshua doesn't know about Achan yet. Verse 9, for the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear it and surround us and cut us off. Our name from all the earth. Then what will you do for your great name? So this is then becomes an intercessory prayer. Joshua's faith in God is presumed. It's therefore we can read verse 7, not in rebellion and not in sin, but verse 7 is that God, Joshua's honestly trying to figure it out. There's not a doubt in God here. Then what will you do for your great name? It's not. It's shifted from what we're going to do to beat AI to what, God, what are you going to do? I just want to get back on your path. So great leaders will serve God. Joshua does this, and he has three basic questions. So before we go into the next verses, the three questions are, God, what's happening? Two, what do I do? And three, what are you going to do? What's next? And I think these are great questions. And I can learn from those questions and start asking them myself. When I experience a failure in life, God, what's going on right now? Give me eyes to see. What do I do? And what do you want me to do? And if we can walk into that position and we can get the facts of things and have God reveal to us what's going on, then we can do it. So God rebukes him, and I like this. Uh, The Lord said to Joshua, get up. Why are you lying on your face? In other words, you're not lower than the dirt, Joshua. You didn't screw up here. Get up. Because sometimes God accepts that repentance, right? That, That tearing of clothes and whatever. And it's like, yeah, you should be down there. But at this point, it's like, Joshua, get up. And I like that. This is the God that we know. Verse 11, Israel has sinned and they have also transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them. So at the very beginning, verse one, Israel has sinned. But at this point, God just, I don't know if you noticed the thing, but with Joshua's repentance and the elders, he just separated the repenting elders and leadership from Israel. Did you see that? Israel has sinned, verse 11, and he's not including these elders in Joshua anymore. So the repentance is fixing things from the top down. They've transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them, for they have even taken some of the accursed things and they have, and have both stolen and deceived two different sins. And they have also put it among their stuff. So Israel has sinned. Uh, oh, here's a thought on this. One idea on this is that if Israel sinned, God just answered the first question. What's going on here, God. And it's not that God moved his position at all. It's that Israel moved their position. And that gives Joshua a lot of information because God doesn't change and he doesn't break his word or his covenant. And if we feel like God's left us, it's not the moving, it's not the movement of God away from us. It's the movement of us away from God. And I think that's a huge point here. And God tells Joshua that and shows it to him. The secret is that there's a secret sin in your nation somewhere. We got to figure this out, Joshua. So... The hiding of things, these devoted things, is bad. I want to go back to Leviticus verse chapter 27 because I want you to see the law that God's making him aware of right now. Because um, this answers the, sex, the second question, what do I do? And the answer to that question is almost always, I've already told you, you idiot. It's in the Bible. So with Joshua, it's the same situation. With the Torah, we have the whole full and complete law. God's already told us what to do in these situations. The problem is we don't read it. And we don't memorize it and meditate on it day and night. So we get re- we have to be reminded. So here it is, Leviticus chapter 27. I'm going to read from ver- chapter verse 28. Nevertheless, no devoted offering that a man may devote to the Lord of all that he has, man or, or and beast, 
or the field of his possession shall be sold or redeemed. Every devoted offering is most holy to the Lord. No person under the ban who may become doomed to destruction among men shall be redeemed. They shall be put to death. If you figure out who this person is that took the doomed stuff for themselves, there is a consequence for that. The consequence is death. This is what you got to do with this person. We'll get to that at the end of the chapter. So they've taken some of the accursed things. The word is haram, or a root word for harem. Uh, not a good thing for polygamy. Um, and it has to do with this idea that those things were devoted. We talked about that. So God doesn't ask for much, right? And I just was thinking, what does God actually ask? He asked for the first fruits of a whole harvest season. He asked for one out of 10 parts of our income, right? He asked for one day out of our seven-day week. God gives us by far the better end of the deal. We get more of the money. We get more of the time. We get the lion's share of the money, the time, the land. All he asked for was the first city of Jericho out of hundreds of cities in the promised land. One city, you're just going to devote that to the Lord and give it up to him. And they can't do that. And I think, at least for me, if I'm honest with myself, I have cheated God on his share hundreds, thousands of times throughout my life. And then you have to decide and make a covenant with God saying, I'm done stealing your stuff. I'm done trespassing in your territory. I'm going to make a covenant with you, God, that I will set myself apart for holiness. I'm not going to steal your time, and I'm not going to steal your resources, and I'm not going to take stuff from Jericho. And that's a heart commitment that people make. As pretty as the Babylonian robes are going to look to this guy, don't touch it. It's devoted. Joshua 6 to 18 applied the law. When God called Jericho devoted, then the Levitical law just applied. That city's devoted to me, and that word has meaning because they've read the law, they've agreed to the law, they shouted it from mountaintops, they've made a covenant for that law, and they're going to obey it. God says, stolen and deceived in verse 11, and they've also, and they have also put it among their own stuff. The translation for the word stuff is stuff. And I love this idea. They just they put it in with all their stuff. The stuff isn't the problem. Money and wealth is not the problem. God blesses some people with money and wealth that know how to handle it. This is not me. But he does that. It's not the problem. It's the problem is you're putting cursed crap in with your stuff. You're mixing what is holy with what should be not holy and not part of your things. You got that show on your watch list that you shouldn't have. You got that game maybe you shouldn't be playing. Those books. Aiken is thinking it's no big deal because it's just him and it doesn't affect anybody else. But that's the problem. He endangers everybody because he's playing with a nuclear bomb in his backyard like it's a kickball. That's a problem. It's not just you playing with that sin. It's everybody you love and care about that knows you and the reputation of the God you claim to serve that's at risk when you toy with that sin. So the sin they play with is going to be deadly and it hurts everybody. In this case, 36 people died because of this guy's private sin. And it's not that God killed people. I don't like that theology. God simply lifted his hand and said, you don't want me to be part of it, I won't be part of it. And this icky world we live in did its damage. Verse 12. Therefore, the children of Israel could not stand before their enemies, but turned their backs like cow... I, well, I won't add anything. Turned their backs before their enemies because they have become doomed to destruction. In doing this, they become doomed to destruction too. See the spiritual connection to the physical stuff? 
Neither will I be with you anymore unless you destroy the accursed from you. They can't stand, and that's really the lesson here. We can't stand without God. So God answers all three of his questions. First question was, what is happening? God says, you broke the covenant, you can't stand on your own. That's what's going on. Question number two, what did I do? God says, or what do I do? And God says, you've got to destroy the cursed thing from among you. You've got to follow Leviticus 27. And then he said, what will you do? And God says, I'm not going to have anything to do with you people until you sanctify yourself. So here are people that call themselves Israel, the people of God, and God's saying, I don't have anything to do with that. Think about that for the church. Are there churches on this planet that call themselves the people of God, and God says, I don't have anything to do with you people. You're mixing in the cursed with the sacred. So you may call yourself whatever you want, put out whatever flag you want, but the worst thing that can happen to a church is God's spirit just lifts from it, and it's dead. And then you get division and arguments and pastors with weird ideas, and they're not teaching the word. Israel's children can't function and conquer the enemy when they're in sin. God's love for us never changes. It's our sin that's the variable. If we say that we have fellowship with him and we walk in darkness, 1 John 1, we lie and we don't practice truth. But if we walk in the light as he's in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all our sins. Verses 6 and 7 in 1 John. Unless you destroy the accursed, this is an unequivocal statement. It is not destroy most of the cursed stuff. It's get rid of all of it. This is the hardest thing for us human beings but I want to keep my Motley Crue album. No, it needs to go too. It's not just a little thing to have that in your life. It's actually sitting there and you know what that thing is in your life, don't you? You can be one of those evangelist people. You know what that thing is. I don't, but God does and you do and it's not hidden. It's public to God. It's possible to sin and fail. It's possible not to sin too. Some of our church sense that, well, we're all sinners, we all fall, we all sin every day. True. But if it's possible to sin, it's also possible to not sin, and that's what the enemy doesn't want you to believe. He wants you to believe that you're locked in sin for the rest of your life, and that you're a prisoner to it, you're enslaved to it, you can't beat it. And that theology's come into an unspirit-filled church all over our country. It's a lie. If you can sin, you can also not sin. You can choose not to do it. We're all tempted but we can choose our actions unless we want God to not be with us. So here's the reality. Defeat is only possible when God's not with us. Children of God, get rid of the sin, and you got to do it. So here's the step-by-step process for how to do this. Verse 13, get up. <laughs> he repeats himself. Because Joshua must have stayed on the ground, right? Get up. Stop beating yourself up with shame. Get up. Sanctify the people and say, sanctify yourselves for tomorrow because thus the Lord God of Israel, there is an accursed thing in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the accursed thing from among you. So Joshua was supposed to say exactly what God said to him. Notice that after he gets up, it says sanctify the people. The book of Leviticus tells him how to do this. You come back to God and say, I'm sorry, that's how to sanctify yourself. And even in the New Testament relation, New Covenant with Christ, it's the same thing. God, I'm so sorry. And God says, I forgive you. I can see your heart. I know that you're, you're beat up by this sin. I know that you're a prisoner to it. I know it's hard to let go of these things. I walked the earth too. But God says, 
I'm going to be with you. Let's get through it. And I think the most important part of that sanctification is, Lord, I'm not able to win this fight without you. It's not a force of will. It's not a discipline, regimen, to-do list, or I'm going to do this many minutes of this per day. That's works-based theology. You can't beat it on your own. There's no human strategy in the Christian bookstore that will help you beat your sin. You have to go to God and say, God, I need you to beat this sin for me. I can't do it. I'm helpless. And when you start praying like that, man, watch God just take care of it. It's really cool. And by the way, be careful with that because sometimes taking care of it means you get caught, right? And you actually hurt some of the people around you. And that's part of how God's going to purge that from your life. That's what happens with Achan. In the morning, therefore, you shall be brought before your tribes, and it shall be that the tribe which the Lord takes shall come according to the families, and the family which the Lord takes shall come by households, and the households which the Lord takes shall come man by man. And then it shall be that he who is taken with the accursed thing shall be burned with fire, he and all that he has, because he's transgressed the covenant of the Lord, because he's done a disgraceful thing in Israel. Remember in Leviticus when we burn things with fire? It's to, say, it's to cleanse things and to get rid of that sort of thing. So the command is burn things with fire because he's done a disgraceful thing. The other piece here is the Levitical law is he's supposed to stone them, right? So we'll see how that works out. Sanctify yourselves. It's an ongoing job. It happens all the time. Now, if the people do this, then Joshua and the leaders have repented. The people have repented, and there's only one person left. So we're going to shift from they, the children of Israel, to he, Achan, that one guy that doesn't repent. And God's going to help Joshua find that thing, sometimes with our own sin, that thing that's holding us back. God's got to actually reveal it to us. It's got to convict us of it. Because a lot of times we, we've already justified that sin so much in our head, we've convinced ourselves it's right. So there's nothing hidden from God. Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? 1 Corinthians 5, 6. Aiken's selfishness impacts the whole country here. And I think it's interesting that they're all having to go through this because of this one guy. And it's important because they're going to deal with that one guy. Verse 13 says, O Israel, that collective you is going to go to a singular he. Let's see that happen. 16, so Joshua rose early in the morning and brought Israel by their tribes, and the tribe of Judah was taken. He brought the clan of Judah, and he took the family of the Zaharites, and he brought the family of the Zaharites man by man. Zabdi was taken. Then he brought his household man by man. And Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah was taken. Rose early, verse 16. We've seen that a few times with Joshua now. It indicates that there's an enthusiasm behind what he's about to do. He's not doing this all willy-nilly. He got up early to get this thing done, right? Spend a night to sleep on it. Now he's up. He's anxious to sort this out. And it's not a difficult decision for Joshua at this point. He's working with the Lord. It says he took over and over again in verse 17. He took, he took, he took. Uh, the word is lahed. It's like drawing straws. So we don't know how God talked to Joshua, but it's only, when it says he took, it's like he took the urim and the thummim, or they had a black stone and a bowl, or they literally drew straws, like little reeds or something. But there was some sort of way in which God did a randomizer, and he took from that and identified the person. So you go from 2 million people with Israel down to 76,000-ish with the tribe of Judah, down to the Zaharites, and we don't know how many people are there, down to the household of Zabi, down to one person, Achan. <laughs> I'm thinking with each of these steps, two things are happening. One, when Judah gets picked, all 11 other tribes are like, good, we're good. 
we're good. We don't get the humiliation. Judah does. Judah gets that disgrace, right? And then it goes down to the next tribe and you're like, oh good, it's not us, it's those people. And I think in the church we do that too a lot. We spend a lot of time being relieved it's not us. You know, some Christian personality falls and you're like, well, at least it's not my pastor. Whew, missed that one. But everybody gets hurt by this. The whole nation's still hurt by it. Second thing that I think is happening is Achan, he's stressing out, right? At each step, it's like, God, God doesn't, this is all, you know, it's no big deal. I didn't even sin. I'm good. It's some other idiot in the thing. Then it gets down to Judah and he's like, oh, that's a bad coincidence. You know, and it gets closer and gets to the family and suddenly you're getting like where each person in the family is lined up and he's like, is God talking about the stuff I hid in my tent? Like, is that really the problem here? And you think this, this, the attitude of Achan is probably either getting more resolute in his sin, more defiant, or he's really sweating it. If he's sweating it, he's on the way to repentance. If you're worried about your sin, you're on your way to repentance. If you're resolving yourself in your sin, you're going to go the way of Achan. This had to be scary either way. Um, every step along the way, Achan also has a chance to step out and reveal himself, doesn't he? He could go walking up to Joshua and say, Joshua, just in between, before you draw the next tribe or family, I'm your guy. You can stop this whole process and just, it's me. He could have done that. Achan could have stepped out right away and gone right to the right to the elders and said, I, you don't need to go through all this. I'm just going to confess. It's me. I got the stuff in my tent. But he doesn't do that. He puts the whole nation through this stuff. I want you to start hating Achan a little bit in a righteous anger. This guy put the nation through a lot of garbage and people are dead because of this guy. It's not a good thing. So why, is Achan, why isn't he stepping forward? Why is he waiting for this? Maybe he's hoping that what he did won't get noticed. God didn't see him. He saw some other person doing something way worse than him because we like to do that. But there's no such thing as a victimless crime. Uh, verse 19, now Joshua says to Achan, he's now standing in front of Joshua. Whole nation's watching because you're not going home after this. You want to see the show, right? So they're all going, okay, this guy, right? My son, I beg you, Joshua says. Give glory to the Lord God of Israel and make confession to him and tell me now what you've done and don't hide it from me. Remember, Joshua has no idea. I like that he says, my son, I beg you. Even as a military victorious leader, Joshua, even as the elder of the nation, even as God's representative, he's got this affection and love even for Achan at this time. There's this compassion and care and love and intimacy. My son, I beg you. And I think that's how we deal with people that we know are in sin. I'm begging you, fix this. And we can beg them to fix it because we know our God forgives. This is the thing, Steph pointed this out this week. I'll give credit where credit's due. This is what Jonah does, right? He's so angry that he has to go to Nineveh because he knows we serve a God that will forgive. And if there's repentance, he doesn't want Nineveh to be forgiven. And Joshua's saying, I'm begging you confess, do what you're doing. Actually ask four things. I want to point out each of the four. Give glory to the God of Israel, number one. Two, make a confession. Number three, tell me what you've done. And four, don't hide it anymore. Let's get this out on the table, right? At first glance, what Aiken's about to say tickles our ears. It's exactly what we want to hear. 
but I really want to unpack his repentance here. Um, Joshua gives him four very specific instructions. He fails on all four of them. So verse 20, and Achan answered Joshua and said, Indeed, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I've done. When I saw among the spoils a beautiful Babylonian garment, 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them and I took them. And there they are, hidden in the earth, in the midst of my tent with the silver under it. So punishment's going to happen for Achan. He admits that he did something. Um, God gives him a chance to speak the truth. He begs him. Um, But is this a confession? Well, kind of. Some would say that, and frankly, some of the commentators I read treated this as a confession, a confession that still needed to be punished, which I found really odd because if we confess our sins, the Lord is just and good to forgive. So that seems like an odd thing. Let's go through each of the four things. A, does in anywhere does he give the glory to the Lord? It's the first request Joshua made, give glory to the Lord. And I would suggest no. He says, I've sinned but he doesn't give the glory to the Lord at all. That's not repentance, and it's not acknowledging your position. Remember when Joshua thought he was in sin? He tore his clothes, flew down to the earth, and put dirt on his head. Acknowledging his position, giving glory to God's position. Does does Achan do that? Is there any overt sign of, of 1500 BC repentance going on here? No, nothing like that. Verse 6, he shows what it should look like when he tore his clothes, but Achan's not doing that. So this is more of an apology like, and we've heard these apologies, I'm sorry you feel like I've done something wrong. You're laughing because you've heard that before. I'm sorry you have such an issue with me. Oh, I've sinned. I've done this thing that is no big deal. Whatever. And I'd like you to read this that way because look at number two. He's supposed to make a confession. Does he? Does he make a confession to him? Capital H, make the confession to God. Does he do that? He says, Achan answered Joshua. Achan's still dealing with this on a human level. He's trying to deal with Joshua and tell Joshua what Joshua, what he thinks Joshua wants to hear. I submit to you, Joshua. Joshua never asked for that. Submit to God. So I would suggest making a confession to God doesn't happen here. Tell me now what you've done. And then he says, this is what I've done. So he explains it, but without one and two, he's not understanding what he's done is that he has trespassed against the Lord and taken devoted things. He just says he took some stuff from Jericho, but he doesn't admit to the spiritual sin at all. He doesn't really say what he's done. Because frankly, taking a, an unused piece of clothing is not a sin. Taking a piece of clothing that was devoted to God is the sin. He took the devoted things. He doesn't admit that. He, I coveted them and I took them. I wanted and I took. That's a statement of fact, but it's not a confession of sin. Right? She was pretty, so we had adultery. That's not a confession. It's a statement but it's not necessarily showing any sort of sign of inward or spiritual repentance. Notice that he uses the word I four times. I did this, I did that, I did this, I did that. It's all centered on him. And then four, it says, do not hide it, which means Achan should have gone and got the stuff and laid it and thrown it before Joshua. That's not hiding it. Instead, he says, it's hidden in my tent. Go find it. Like, I'm not going to get it for you. 
right? So the four things he's asked to do, two are definitely he doesn't do them, and three and four, like, maybe depends on how you read it. But I would say, spiritually speaking, absolutely not. This is absolutely not what Joshua was begging him to say. Because Joshua didn't want him to say anything to him. He wanted him to get right with God. Because God's the one we care about here. So Achan doesn't actually repent, I don't think. He says what he did, doesn't show any signs of repentance. Joshua asked him to, and he just says, I'm sorry you feel that way, Joshua. Or, yeah, I did it. What are you going to do about it? Got the stuff in my tent. He even names it. He even weighed it, right? He took the time to weigh it. He knew how, how heavy it was. He, you get another clue as to his tone here with his adjectives. It's a beautiful Babylonian garment. Like these are ornate. If you see these kind of like the Babylonian dress was gold thread and weaved and purple and red. It's gorgeous stuff, but it's not beautiful. It's doomed to destruction. It's cursed and corrupt. Like there's other adjectives to use with that particular garment. It's not beautiful. The things that are cursed are not beautiful. And he's mixed up his whole spiritual kind of thing there. And it's not holy. There's nothing beautiful about Babylon. They're sick. And that human power, avarice, the slavery, the oppression that's over there. I don't care if they got fancy clothes. That stuff is sick. So why would you want to wear their clothing and have it, you know, why would you want to brand it for them and show it off? Like, what are you trying to do? Impress your Israeli neighbors with how Babylonian you are? How connected you are with the world? How wealthy you are? So there's this stuff there, and it's like, no, Aiken, yuck, not cool. Don't go there, but he does. It makes you wonder who he was trying to impress. Like, maybe there's other people involved here. So the wedge, is the word wedge there, is a, it's actually a tongue of gold. So it may have been off of an altar or a statue. Um, and that, that wedge thing, it would have been something he broke off or took. So it's actually a part of an idol. Weighs 50 shekels. He took time to weigh it. Um, but now it's public, at least. At least the sin is out there. And it's hanging and dangling in front of the whole nation. Um, and Achan's kind of like, what are you going to do about it, Joshua? And Joshua sends messengers, verse 22. They run to the tent. There it was. It was hidden in his tent. In other words, Achan didn't reveal it. The messengers did. And whether and they found the silver under it. And they took them from the midst of the tent, brought them to Joshua and to all the children of Israel, and laid them out before the Lord. That's That word there in the Hebrew is poured out. He pour out all this crap before the Lord. There it is. God, take it. Not before Joshua, before the Lord. So Joshua's messengers get it right, but Achan doesn't. They ran to do it, verse 22, uh, indicating like we're not going to waste any time with this. In the New Testament, it says if you got a sin, deal with it like abrasively and quickly. If your eye causes you to sin, what do you do with it? You pluck it out. I've struggled with that before. Like really? If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If Achan's causing you to sin, let's do it now and get it done with. Like, let's not waste any time with this stuff. So the way in which we see the messenger, verse 22 and 23, what we see the messengers doing is what Achan should have done. And Joshua's, Achan's not going to take care of it. Joshua's going to. So um, the vulnerability of Israel is about to get taken care of, and real people got killed by the Amorites because of him. So when the murder isn't known, back in Deuteronomy 21, 
the elders find out there's a dead person in the field. They don't know who the murderer is. What they were supposed to do in verse 6, Deuteronomy 21, bring the heifer, like a valuable cow down, and you're going to bring it down into a valley with flowing water, which is neither plowed nor sown, and you shall break the heifer's neck. You shall lower it into the valley, and all the elders of the city nearest the slain man shall wash their hands over the heifer whose neck was broken in the valley. You kill the cow in the valley. And the whole nation gets to watch it and be part of it. And then you wash your hands. And now that sin is put on the cow. There's been a sacrifice. We can't find the murderer. But we as a community have dealt with the fact that this murder happened in our community. And we're not responsible for it anymore. And that whole process seems really weird in Deuteronomy. But it's what they're going to do when it becomes real. They're going to apply that law as here. Only here they know the murderer, so there's no heifer that needs to be in place. It's going to be Achan that goes down into that valley, and they're going to uh, lower Achan because not just one body was found, but 36 bodies were found. So this time they ID the responsible party. Achan, oh, I didn't say this, did I? His word means trouble. Did I tell you all that? Okay, so the troubler just troubled Israel and made a big pain in the butt for everybody. Uh, and he has this self-serving, pride-gripping, chin-up false apology. And then this guy's going to get stoned. He's going to pay for his, his, his sins. So the community is going to be redeemed, and they're going to get the leaven out of the bread. And that's going to set them up. So for seven days, no leaven shall be found in your houses, since whoever eats what is leavened, that same person shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he's a stranger or a native in the land. Exodus 12:19. God's already told them what to do. It's just that we don't like to hear it. Because sin's ugly, and the way God deals with sin is abrupt and quick. And that's hard for us, because we live in a nation where we don't go stone people. So we don't have a, we haven't acclimated ourselves to stoning practices. Um, luckily, in the New Covenant, I don't think that's what we're called to do. That's another Bible study. But at this point in time, it's what Joshua was supposed to do. The God of the Word of God says exactly what to do with sin, and there's no excuses for it. You don't cling to it. You deal with it. It's super clear. So actually, there's seven deadly sins that just happened. Let me all go through them. Number one. That you didn't repent, that's self-love. It's putting somebody else before the Lord your God. Commandment number one. There's accursed things, that tongue, that wedge of gold. That's commandment number two. He pretends to take up God's name, but doesn't really. That's commandment number three. Negligent manslaughter is murder. That's commandment number six. He took stuff from God, that's stealing. Commandment number eight. And then he hid it from God and Joshua, which is bearing false witness, commandment number nine, and he admits that he coveted those things, commandment number 10. Literally breaks seven of the 10 commandments. Any doubt what needs to happen with Achan? With what they know, with what God said that they should do? It started with covetousness, and that's the one he admits to. I coveted them, I wanted them, and I took them. Take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things you possess. Luke 12, 15. Watch out for covetousness. Watch out for that attitude of, I wanted it, I took it. It's a really dangerous place. Exodus 18, 21. Select from all the people able men, such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness. Our response to this disposition and attitude should be hatred. We should hate people that think like that. Actually, let me say that differently because I don't want to get emails. We should hate the covetousness. We should beg them, my son, don't do it, just like Joshua did. We love the person, 
We hate what that sin does to the person. Does that make sense? Better? No emails over that one? Okay. Jeremiah 6.13, search your heart. We all have this. Jeremiah 6.13 says, because from the least of them to the greatest of them, everyone is given to covetousness. And from the prophet even to the priest, everyone deals falsely. So don't excuse yourself. Guard your heart and stand guard over your heart in this very situation. We're all given to this attitude. Amazing that in Israel there's only one guy that took stuff from Jericho. Isn't that kind of a stunning thing, what we've got historically here? A nation of people that are actually acting holy? They were all tempted. They all walked by Babylonian garments ready to steal. Achan's the only one that took one. This is really pretty good if you want to see the, you know, the full side of the cup. Israel deals with it. Verse 24. Then Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, the silver, the garment, the wedge of gold, his sons, his daughters, his oxen, his donkey, his sheep, his tent, all that he had, and they brought them to the valley of Achor. <laughs> the valley has now been named um, a little differently. And all Israel is with him, and this indicates a civic action. They're doing what the law commands. This is not fun for Israel. It is never fun when a body of people have to deal with somebody who's actively sinning and refusing to change their path on that. And you're like, you know, we just, and this is how we're doing it in this fellowship. If you're not on board, if you're not okay with how we're following the word of God, maybe this isn't your fellowship. And frankly, that's the New Testament translation. We don't stone people. We ask them to leave the fellowship. And that happens. Churches ask people to leave sometimes because there just isn't unity of spirit around some, usually it's some issue that people disagree on. And then you got to just say, look, this just isn't your fellowship. There's other churches to go to. We can't have you here because here we're doing it like this. This is how we do, right? So there's not fun. They're not, there's no sense of relish here, as the critics say of the book of Joshua. There's no sense that these people are like, yeah, let's get them. It's not like the Pharisees. They're not doing that. They do it as this dutiful civic thing. This is a horrible scene. You know, sons and daughters, like Aiken's whole household's going to be affected by his sin. They're all going down because they've all been part of hiding the stuff in the tent. They've all been trained in on how to deceive. We gotta, they're all doomed at this point. God will sort them out later. You know who you are in God. You know who, you're, who you are. You don't get moved by every little wind of covetousness. There's a unity in faith that has to happen in the people of God. I told you this was a heavy subject night. So this, where they're all moving together to do this thing together as a community, that's a hard thing to do. And when we fail spiritually in battle, there's usually hard things that need to be done to get back to victory. We love chapter six. We do not teach chapter seven in Sunday school. Like this isn't really a popular topic, but it's tough. Until we all come in the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, Ephesians 4, 13 and 14, until the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we will be no more children tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men, the cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. We can't do that as a body. We have to do what the Bible says and meditate on it day and night. We got to find brothers and sisters that feel the same way. I just want to live for God. I just want to do what the Bible says. Praise the Lord for people that just make that vow. I'm just going to do that because everything else fails. This word of God conquered Jericho. 
when they follow it, things win. This word of God conquers the Roman Empire under Jesus Christ's words. Then went on to conquer all sorts of tyrannies all over the planet. They conquered slavery because of the word of God. They conquered fascism because of the word of God. Communism, at least Russian communism, fell because the word of God said that it's not right. All empires fall in the face of the word of God. It's what God's doing in history. Trust it. It works. The son of Zerah here, let's point out, Achan's sin is going to scar the name of that family for all of, of the history of Israel. The shame that this brings to even his extended family is not a good thing, right? All that he had, the whole household's going to be executed. Even the non-Jericho things, there's things added to the list that he didn't take from Jericho. They're going to get destroyed. Sons and daughters are being held accountable. Um, some people, by the way, some commentators believe the sons and daughters here are brought down, but the them is the idols and the sons and daughters don't actually get killed. That's a tough one for me to read into this. I'd rather just let the hard truth hit me that the whole family was down there because that's what I see when I read it. You may see something different and we can talk about it. At face value, it seems to indicate all that he had. In fact, it says all that he had. Um, so it indicates that everything's down in this valley. No one gets the benefit from Achan's loss. That's part of sin. When sin happens and we're going to get rid of it, nobody profits off that. Nobody's going to inherit his donkeys because of this situation. Because that leads to the temptation to bear false witness and accuse people of things. Because then people think they'll profit from somebody else's loss. So that doesn't happen. That's back in the law too. Verse 25. And Joshua said, Why have you troubled us? The Lord will trouble you this day. Those are power words, Joshua. So all of Israel stoned him with stones and they burned him with fire after they had stoned him with stones. Why have you troubled us? The tone here from Joshua is like, Achan, this whole thing stinks. Look at what you've done to Israel. It's not what Israel's doing to Achan, right? And that's the temptation, I think. The, the affection is to say, ooh, look at what they're doing to Achan. But that's not the context the Bible gives us. Joshua says, why have you troubled us? Look at what you've done to us. And there's 36 families that don't have a father anymore that are standing at the front of this thing, ready to throw some stones and get some justice. The, the theft that Achan made wasn't even worth one of their lives. And the destruction he did wasn't worth that tongue of gold. So there's two perspectives there. At the point of justice, we're concerned with the nation. This isn't fun. It's not pretty. Joshua says, the Lord will trouble you this day. In other words, he's using Achan's name against him. And, and so read that sentence like it is, because the, the word is Acha or Achan. Why have you achened us? The Lord will achen you this day. You're going you're gonna to be achen for some bacon. Um, but Achan is trouble, and he's like, look, at it's, your name suits you well. You, you, you selfish person. You don't have the right to trouble God's people. Sorry, you may think you do. You may be indignant about all this, Achan, but you're going down, and they're going to do it. So the Lord will trouble you this day. God takes the responsibility for executions in the Old Testament. Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Numbers. God always takes the responsibility when these things have to happen. It's on God. So God will trouble you this day. Uh, another indication, because they want to put that responsibility on God, is that they're not relishing this at all. Nobody likes to do this. The love of money is the root of all evils, and some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. 1 Timothy 6.10 The blood here is on Achan's hands. 
He did it. He's responsible for it. So all Israel stoned him. It's a civic execution. It's not Joshua going out and do it. It's everybody together is in on it. We now have unity again in getting justice in the situation. Here's the thing. The church is also one body. In the New Testament, we see the same image of Romans 7, 4, 1 Corinthians 12, 27, Ephesians 4, 12. The body of Christ is united and works together as a people. The epistles are addressed mostly to churches. And there's a couple to individuals, but they're addressed to a body of people. In the book of Revelation, there's the churches that are addressed and judged by God. As a body of people, they're judged together. So there's two responsibility things here. And, I, and to me, this is like there's so much in this chapter. The church is accountable to the flock. So as a body, we're accountable to admonish each other, shepherd one another, minister to one another, encourage one another. If one of us is struggling or weak, we're here to strengthen each other and build each other up. If only you confess your sins, find a brother, find a sister, be accountable to them. And that's not like a Mormon thing, right? That's just this voluntary, I connect well with you, you're a friend, can you pray for me in this? And find that connection point. And that's what we do after the Bible study. That's the most important time. I take up time, but I'm not the most important thing. The most important thing is when we pray together and share our needs with one another. And when we, then we, we put this into action when we do that. So the other direction is the individual is still accountable for the ministry they choose to be a part of. You're accountable because God will judge churches as a body. I don't underestimate that. You're accountable for the church you're a part of. And you will be judged based on who you devote yourself to and with. So think about that wisely. And it's better almost to not be in a body than it is to be in a body that you're doomed to be with in eternity. <laughs> Right? So that's a really key thing. You can't serve both God and mammon. It doesn't work that way. You have to do it God's way or you can do it your own way and you're going to be in that boat. So this doesn't mean that anyone can hang up the banner of Christ and that God's okay with that. And we have a problem right now in our country and I really think this is the chapter to deal with it in. We have a thing called the progressive church in America right now. And for 2,000 years, the progressive church has popped up every two, 300 years. And it's a church that says, the Bible's not really true. We're going to interpret it this way, and here's how we're going to take the Bible. It's a really dangerous theology. It's insidious because they're nice people, and they've got a banner of Jesus up. They may even have a tapestry on the wall. And if the tapestry's there, well, you're, you're good to go. 24% of the people in America believe the Bible's true. Here's the odd thing. 93% of the people in America are believers. They believe in God of some sort or another. That means 50% plus of the people in America believe in God, but don't believe the Bible's true. That's the influence of the, the progressive church. This is huge. And we get to under 30-year-olds. 30 30 I'm looking here because I got a group of you. Um, only 12% of you believe the Bible's true. One in 10. This is crazy. Since the 1950s, these numbers have gone down by double digits. College grads, only 13% believe the Bible's true. Something's being taught in colleges that says the Bible is not true. And we're learning this in colleges that call themselves Christian. I know this personally. <laughs> it's devious, and it's weird, and it's horrible. Why would you call yourself a Christian and doubt God's word? I don't understand. If God's word isn't true, don't follow it. Don't base your life on a lie. What a ridiculous thing to do. And it's a logical conclusion, if it's not true, to not follow it. So these under 30-year-olds actually have a brain. If they don't believe the Bible's true, then don't follow it. Don't put the banner out. 
don't clean, don't hang the tapestry, right? And that's a really tricky thing. It's worse than the threat of Jericho. Jericho's threat was obvious. It was an enemy. It's you know the the Wic the Wiccans, and the warlocks and the atheists, like it's obvious and you can see it. And there's a stone wall around their hearts that's not hard to see. This chapter's enemy, way worse, way more destructive for the kingdom, way more insidious. It's the people who call themselves believer and then put seeds of doubts in the hearts of the people around them. It's sick. Stop calling yourself a believer. It's disgusting to God when he sees people like Achan. This guy who thinks he's so great. It's, it's devastating for the church because his hypocrisy hurts all of us. And there's people going down because of this. There's people that don't believe in Jesus Christ because of the effect of people like Achan that call themselves a believer. Achan consecrated himself. Achan circumcised himself. Achan marched around Jericho. Achan was one of those dudes. He was on the team. And he caused these kinds of problems. He caused disunity with his faithlessness in the kingdom. And I can't emphasize that enough. This is a big, big thing. Verse 15, God commands them to be burned, to purify it all. But the law demands in Leviticus 20, remember, demands stoning. Notice here it says, so Israel stoned him with stones and they burned him with fire. They do both. Because God tells them to do one in his written word and he tells them to do one with his inspired word. And they just, they obey both. But then they put this thing at the end. They tell us when they happened and they tell us twice. Burn them with fire after they stoned them with stones. Why is that so important to put in there? Why do they say the stoning part twice? And I think they say it because stoning is like killing with the sword, what they did in Jericho. It's fast. If a million people throw rocks at a person or even a person in their family at the same time, they're going down almost instantly. It is a quick format. One big rock hits your head, you're out. It's merciful. It's about as merciful as you can get if you have to do a community execution. There's nothing. Burning is torture. It's what the evil people did to like purify their Puritan towns back in the day. It's horrible and ugly and disgusting and stinky, right? So they make a huge point of this because stoning is the merciful of the two. And the stoning happens because they wanted Aiken to not... They're not there to torture. They're there to execute, and it's very different. So they make a note of that. Verse 26, the epilogue, and then they raised a, over him a great heap of stones, almost like the stones kept coming, like they did the fire, and then they just kept filling the valley because they don't even want to look at the ashes. They're just going to cover it, and the stones cover it all up. It's still there to this day, self-referential historicity. And so the Lord turned from the fierceness of his anger, and therefore the name of that place has been called the Valley of Acre to this day, the Valley of Trouble, Achan. And they raised uh, this idea of the fierceness of God's anger is going to turn, it's going to end. Um, so, the, so the Lord turned from the fierceness of his anger. That's an important summary. It's the moral of the story. God won't be party to sin. But when you come and repent, you turn from your sins, his anger turns, just like that. Quick to anger, quick to let it go, right? We always think that my wife and I have had folks in our life where we, we've had to part ways with them or just say, look, if you're going to be like that, we, we just can't hang with you. But we always imagine, you know, if they showed up on Sunday night at 5 o'clock, instant forgiveness. We'd have no problem with it. Come on in the door. And that's hard to think. So go through your life and think of all the people you hate the most, maybe even righteous indignation the most. But if they said, can I come to Bible study with you? I just want to get right with God. 
would you forgive them? So it's one thing to hate, and sometimes that's righteous hateness. But I always think, you know, at the end of the day, if they said, I want to make it right, can I come to Bible study with you? I really want to learn what the Lord has to say in my life. I think my heart would just melt in the right way, in the good way. And I'd be like, yeah, come on in, man. Sit down, because for me, it's man. All right. Just narrowed it down by 50%. You'd be like, yeah, you're welcome. Come on in. Have some food. Let's pray together. Let's get right. And, and I think at the end of the day, as believers, that's what makes us different, is that we really can forgive. Our hatred isn't something that goes along political lines. It's, it goes along sin lines. We hate the sin, but the sinner, man, if they want to repent, there's repentance to be had. And in this case, the, the moral of the story is God turns his anger from two million people because the one person that was hard-hearted got taken care of. And step by step, incrementally, that person was removed from Israel and was no longer part of Israel. They were separated from the camp. So... Huge connection to the New Testament. Don't want to miss it, but didn't know where to fit it into the chapter. A lot of people read the book of Joshua and see it as a huge comparison to the book of Acts. So if you're lucky enough to study the book of Acts right now, the comparison of Jericho goes right along with Pentecost. The Holy Spirit, walls break down. God's people move into the territory. The church is established on the day of Pentecost. Good thing to celebrate, you know, with Catholics if you they, they get into that. And then the... Walls come down. The sin of Achan is often then compared to Ananias and Sapphira, Sapphira, right? It's the exact same sin. They hide something from God that was supposed to be devoted to God. Exact same sin. The parallel is perfect. So at the two points in history when God's establishing his people, they have this great massive victory. And like then the next day, there's this somebody in the camp that wants to be selfish about it and make it their own little thing and profit from God's work. God won't have that and he won't tolerate it and he'll unveil it veil it, and it'll be a public disgrace because when God's people are moving in unity, God will deal with those individuals that are selfish and he'll, he'll purge them from that movement. Um, and then of course, I haven't made one connection all night. So I have to say, it's a little bit like having that ring in your pocket that little ring of power that gives you something secret to think about that's your precious ring, that's your little baby that you keep with you that no one knows about, that if you want to, you can put it on and no one can see you delighting in your stuff, but it's still sin and everybody can see you. Gollum can't hide that well, right? And you see this personal thing killing the work of the people of God and doing massive destruction and God deals with it, he purges it, and then gives us a way out. He doesn't give us anything where he doesn't give us a way out. And the way out is repent of your sins, cast them on the Lord, do it now. Don't wait until tomorrow and take care of it. Run to get rid of this sin in your life and deal with it and take care of it. So we get a chance to pray. Make sure you're praying with people that if you got to talk about some of this stuff, you know, if you're embarrassed by it, good. It should be embarrassing. But get over it and move on. You ready to pray? Dear Lord and King, thank you for the book of Joshua. We thank you for your holy word. We thank you, Lord, for giving us examples of how your law gets applied. And we thank you for the, rep, the, the, the example that Joshua sets and uh, how he deals with it, how the elders deal with it, how the people of Israel, the people of God deal with these things. Lord, we hate sin. We absolutely hate it. We want it out of our lives. We want to get rid of it. Lord, help us to be soft enough of heart still to where we don't harden like Achan um, and give false 
confessions. Lord, if there's a sin in our life, help us to humble ourselves before you, give you glory and lift you up to reveal it, to get rid of it, to get it out. Um, Lord, what a blessing and how sacred it is to you when a heart repents. And Lord, we know that that's your heart, that, that you wish that not even one of us is lost to this. And we know that we're all tempted by it. So Lord, help us to just be real with it, to deal with it, and to serve you. Because Lord, more than anything, we want to see the walls fall down again. Uh, we want to see the kingdom move forward. We want to see your will be done. We want to see the, 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 the glory of the name of Jesus is held on high by people that serve you for real. And Lord, we love you. And we care for every uh, work that you're doing in our life and in our heart. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.